Jewish audio on Chabad.org. So today we're going to learn about the big payoff. In our in the previous class, on Pasuches, Haman gave the justification for the final solution. He explained why it's a good idea to get rid of the Jewish people. And after he's laid the groundwork and he's given the justification, so Haman goes ahead and he says, in light of all this, if it pleases the king, so then he should write to destroy them. That's translated literally and we'll, we'll speak about that in a moment. And then Haman adds, Ba'aseres alofim kikar kesef and 10,000 silver talents eshkol ayyidei oiseh ha I will pay out or bring through those who are doing the work lahavi al ginze ha-melech to bring this to the storehouses of the king or to the king's treasuries. So the first, the first thing which uh, requires elucidation on a very literal level it says, Im halamelech taif, if the king pleases it. So in saying, if the king pleases it, Haman is trying to convey this notion that I'm not saying you have to do this, I'm not asking you to do this, I'm just saying, if, if you think it's a good idea, I'm, I'll, I'm all for it, I'll do whatever I can to help. This is, he's asking Ahasuerus to make the decision. He's not, he doesn't want to make the decision by himself. He says, if you think this is a good idea, because we already discussed that this is a troublesome people, and nobody likes them, and there's all kinds of good reason and justification to get rid of these Jewish people. So if the king thinks it's a good idea, so then you kosev la'abdam, he should write to destroy them. How do you write to destroy? How powerful is a pen? So Rashi says, you kosev svarim, he should write documents, to send it to the various ministers or various uh, regents of the different provinces, that they should be destroyed. Now how is, how is uh, Haman so certain, or at least how does he present it with such certainty, that Afachashverosh will just write, as long as he uses his pen, so everything will get taken care of automatically. So first of all, it's interesting to note that when, when Haman makes his pitch, he doesn't say that Ahasuerus should actually destroy them. He doesn't ask Ahasuerus to do anything. In fact, the Ma'am law says, he says, I'm not asking you something that's going to be difficult, he says. There's no, there's no tircha gdola. Well, it's not going to be a big deal, he says. All you need is Meshicha sakomas. You just have to move the feather. You just have to move the pen. And if you move the pen, he says, these things will happen by themselves. And in two ways. He says, number one, I'll grease the wheels. I'm going to give a lot of money. Number two, he says, the people who hear about this will be delighted to carry it out. Not only will, will you will not have to pay them, in fact, I'll be able to get them to pay for it. They'll be so happy to do this. And, and, and um, because, Haman suggests, this is the way the Mamelo always explained it, he says, you know the Jews are taking everybody's money. They're infringing on everybody's business. So everybody will be happy to get rid of competition. It's, it's a good business investment that we can, we can, we'll pay for this. The king won't have to spend money on it. He'll actually make money off this. All expenses will be taken care of and this project, if you will, will justify itself. So, so that's how Haman makes the case. And the Medrash tells us that Amar Eish it was known and revealed before he 
who created the world, that Haman is going to pay out shekels. Hashem made sure that our shekels preceded his shekel. Our payout preceded his payout. And this is the meaning, on the first day of Adar, we make a, a, an announcement. We publicize this idea that it's time for us to collect the shekels. What is this referring to? So, as you may know, when the Jewish people came out of Mitzrayim, they were supposed to be counted, but Hashem says you don't count by head. Instead, everybody should give a half a shekel, and you'll count half shekels. And this was a mitzvah that actually we did annually. When the, when the Mishkan was first built, the half shekels were used twice, once to create the Adonim, the sockets, the foundation of the Mishkan, and then there was a second collection. And that collection paid for the offerings, the daily offerings in the Beit HaMikdash. So those were brought on behalf of the entire Jewish people, and actually everybody paid for it. And everybody paid for it equally. Nobody had a greater or a smaller stake in the offerings that were brought on a daily basis. So when does the year's end in the Beit HaMikdash? When do we start, in modern terminology, when do the books get closed? When do we open a new year? The answer is Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Why? Because that's when the Beis HaMikdash started to function. On the first day of Nisan is when the first offerings were brought in the Beis HaMikdash. That's when the Shekhinah was actualized. So when should we collect the half shekels? Traditionally, it was always done in the month of Adar. In fact, Rosh Chodesh Adar, the Mishnah says, is when we start being, being mashmia, we start sending the message out. So in, in, in today's terminology, that's when we start posting it on Facebook. That's when we start, everybody starts getting emails. That's when the word goes out. That's when the electronic signs are lit up. Everybody hears, remember, did you give your half shekel yet? And during the course of a month, as we know in, in, in publicity campaigns, take some time. I think the, the number is you have to hit somebody seven times till most, most people actually respond. So we start to hit them. We start on Rosh Chodesh Adar. And then the first two weeks, we continuously broadcast this message. And then towards the end, we start actually demanding this. We don't just wait for people to come on their own volition, but we start making sure that everybody pays up their half shekels, and all the half shekels have to be collected by the end of the month of Adar. So we go into Nisan, all the money is transported to the Beit HaMikdash, a whole system of how the money was kept, the treasury of the Beit HaMikdash, and the Beit HaMikdash treasury then would start to pay for the new offerings, the New Year's offerings. What we did if we had a surplus, there's a discussion about that. Where does the surplus go? How do we spend money from last year if the offerings no longer are required for this year's come to an end. We have new offerings. We're supposed to use the new money that was raised. So what is the Medrash saying? In other words, that nothing happens in isolation. Nothing just happens in a vacuum. If Haman came and he wanted to literally buy, buy the rights to kill us or buy the rights to have us destroyed, so Hashem says, even though we did a lot of mistakes and unfortunately put ourselves in a position where Haman was able to come and do what he wanted to do, or at least set in motion his machinations, nonetheless, Hashem already planned for us to overcome these shekels. So we were always giving half shekels in the month of Adar. Haman comes in the month of Adar and he gives these half shekels to Ahasuerosh. Our shekels serve as a counterweight to his shekels which is really interesting. So you see that there's not, it's not, in Judaism, the various details, especially when you talk in a biblical sense, are not isolated from one another. Everything is interlocking. And the truth is, it gets even more, more profound. It gets even deeper than this. Because there's another Medrash that says that Haman did not know how many Jewish people there were now. The, the Targum Sheni says, 
Haman said, the last time I know of counting Jewish people, the number I have from their books is when they came out of Mitzrayim. So when they came out of Egypt, it says there were 600,000 people who were eligible for military conscription or for armed, the armed forces. And that was males between the age of 20 to 60. So in order to count who was eligible for military conscription, who could be drafted, so everybody had to give half a shekel. So Haman said, good, so we'll like, take this amount and... This, this is the amount we're going to use. This is going to be the proverbial amount of 600,000, which correctly is the proverbial amount of Jewish people. We're going to use this 600,000 as the basis for the shekels that I will give you now. Now, here's the little problem with this. The, the problem is that if, if it is 600,000 that corresponds, if that's the number Haman used, so 600,000 people giving half a shekel equals how many shekels? 300,000. 300,000. How many, how many shekels does Haman offer to the kings for the king's treasury? He says 10,000 silver talents. A kikar. Kikar is a talent. Now, how much is this? So here's, the, the problem is that a talent is of the value of 3,000 shekel each. So therefore, if it's 10,000 talents and each one is 3,000, we're talking about 30,000 shekels. So, but if we have, pardon me, not, not 30,000 shekels. If each, if each talent has 3,000 shekel, so it comes out to be, we have 10,000, 10, 300,000, no? Am I missing something? So, that, that kind of balances itself out, it works itself out. How, how much is this, by the way? So, so um, a talent of silver is 2,400 ounces of silver. So how much silver are we talking about here? We're talking about 750 tons of silver. Silver by today's, uh, more or less today's commodities are down, but by today's prices, it's like, let's say, it's, it's hovers around like $30 an ounce. So by today's prices, where commodities are down, and we're talking about the inflation of what things are worth then, it comes out that if you do the math, it's about $720 million. And when commodities are up, it could be closer to a billion dollars. So this is an enormous amount of money. This is not a small amount of money. And Haman came forward, and he was ready to give uh, a lot of money. Now, actually, it doesn't work out. It works out uh, 300,000, um, 30, 300,000 shekels will end up being 100 talents. This is 10,000. So there is, there is actually a, um, a commentary in the Tesfus that indicates that we're not talking about the half a shekel, but rather 50 shekels that were given ahead with the, with, instead of uh, the, the uh, Levite. For, to, so that's, that's really the calculation that's used. Anyway, the Chachamim have the various ways of coming up with this calculation of how exactly it could equal the same amount of money. But the, the point is twofold. Number one, the shekels that we gave every single year, the annual mitzvah we performed, that had something to do with Haman's ult- ultimate downfall. That laid the foundation for us to be able to bring out a miracle to merit Hashem's salvation. And Haman, according to the Targum Sheni and the Gemara, that he was going back to the time of Mitzrayim, so then it was the shekels that our ancestors gave at the time of Mitzrayim, when they left Egypt, that those shekels later serve as a counterweight to the shekels of Haman that's given. In other words, something that happens thousands of years earlier makes a difference a thousand years later, more than 1,500 years later. And I'm going to share an interesting story with you, which, which, which kind of two interesting stories. So there's a, there's a story of a chassid of the Altar Rebbe, whose name was Gershon. And this Gershon, 
I think his wife's name was Leah Rifka. And they were very generous people. They didn't have any children. And uh, the Wheel of Fortune turned, and, and the Gershon lost his money. And the Alter Rebbe sends him a message. And in the message, he says, I need you to, to provide a certain amount of money, whatever there was a certain need Alter Rebbe had to either ransom somebody who was a captive or taking care of orphans, whatever it was. And the messenger came to the Gersh and they said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have it anymore. I'm not able to give it. And he was very, very despondent. He couldn't respond to his Rebbe's request. His wife comes home and she's very despondent. And she says, why, what's wrong? So he said, listen, the shliach came from the Alter Rebbe and he wanted money and we always gave and I wasn't able to give. So she said, the Rebbe wants money and we didn't give. She took all her jewelry and she went and pawned the jewelry. And she took the, the silver coins, whatever, the gold coins Alta Alta Rebbe had asked for, a certain amount, and she polished the coins herself, and she sent her husband with the money. Okay. So the, the, he comes to the, the Alta Rebbe, and he brings, puts the coins on the table, and Alta Rebbe mentions that the coins have a tremendous shine, a radiance to them. So, and Alta Rebbe says, just as the coins are shining, Alta Rebbe saw B'staba, that went on over here, he said, your mazel should sign, and you should be noisechein. You should always find grace in people's eyes. Anyway, the story is that Ibegeshen goes home, and the wheel of fortune turns again. And he becomes very wealthy, and now he's blessed with children also. And the name of the family was noisechein. Noisechein means find favor. That's the story. That's the story as we know it. Okay, fine. So a couple of years ago, um, the Chabad Rabbi of Rehovot is here with us for Shabbos, Rabbi Gluchowski. Remember, Gluchowski is actually a Trantonian. And he's telling an amazing story. He says that he, his wife is of Russian extraction. So when the Russian immigrants that are coming out, they had a lot of these families over for Shabbos. And Rabbi Gluchowski's father was a, a legendary Torah teacher here in Toronto. He had very interesting uh, things. So one of his things was, Bereshus Shmois. That's the first two books of the Torah, you know. Genesis and Exodus. Bereshus, in the beginning, Shmois. Let's hear the names. So he goes on the table. So one family, his name is, you know, Russian-sounding names. Ovich and uh, Pekovich and Shmukovich, whatever. And one family is like, yeah, don't even ask her. We have a funny name. They said, what's your name? I don't, it's, it's weird. Like, let's, let's, let's not focus on the name. So what's your name? So he says, you don't even know where it comes from. Neisachain. He says, name is Neisachain? He says, do you know what the name is? He says, no. And he tells him the story. Anyway, they do research and they find out that this couple actually is descended from this, this Hasidim. And they were so moved to hear that they come from such special people that they actually came home to Yiddishkeit because of this. So he had tzedakah that was given 250 years earlier, and 250 years later, brings, it brings a family back to Yiddishkeit. This is how we understand the notion of tzedakah that was given, the half shekels that were given. Half shekels are given by Jewish people when they went out of Mitzrayim. It wasn't just something that made a difference and an impact at that time. It's something that sets in motion a domino effect and ultimately can bring about a transformation. And there's another uh, a fascinating story. I'm, I'm told, it's, it's, it's a longer story, but very briefly, there was a, a, a fellow in, at Boston University who lost his father when he was a little boy and very, very little background or education with Yiddishkeit. And he was working on his third degree, I think, as a medical doctor with a number of other designations. And uh, he went for a birthright trip, went to Israel for the first time in his 30s. And he was very inspired. But he didn't know what to do with it. Came home, very inspired. What to do with this inspiration? And he meets two Lubavitch boys and he gets into a conversation with them. He's rollerblading near, near the water there. And he gets into a conversation with them and they said, maybe you don't want to put on film. He says, I have my father's film. Anyway, he said, but we have to check it if it's kosher. He gives them his father's film. 
gave them his father's film. And these are the boys that weren't so responsible. Somehow they lost his number or he lost their number. Anyway, it's his father's film. He's very distraught. He doesn't know, he doesn't know where these boys are and he can't, can't find the tefillin. So one thing leads to the next and he tracks down these boys and he calls the local Chabad house and they do find the tefillin. And, and uh, in the meantime, he, gets, he becomes in contact with the local shlich at Boston University, so he pulls him. And Rabbi Pozen suggested his fellow, he starts coming around every Shabbos and he's getting involved, that he should go to yeshiva in Crown Heights. Take a, take a year off, a sabbatical. Okay, fine. So he's there. And it wasn't a good time. It was just time of Gimel Tamas before. There was a lot of chaos. And, and he really wasn't sure what he was doing there. It wasn't, it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. And, and at that particular Shabbos morning... So the yeshiva was eating at, in, a, in a building, which today is called Ahalei uh, Menachem or Ahalei Torah, but at one time it was called the Brooklyn Jewish Center. This is one of the first JCCs built, built at the turn of the last century. And they had a campaign to pay off whatever it is, the, the mortgage at the time. And he had once heard that his father gave money, like his father passed away when he was a little boy. And he's standing there, and he's very confused, doesn't know if he's going to stay here or leave, what's going to be. And he's standing at the wash basin, and he looks up and he sees a plaque with his father's name. And he said, at that moment, he felt his father's presence. And it was as if I said, my father like, was hugging me and saying, relax, everything's going to be fine. And everything turned out. And I, I actually met this guy recently. He has a son in yeshiva now. He got, he got married, Baruch Hashem, a son in yeshiva. It's like his whole life turned around, right? But it's a tzedakah, an act of tzedakah that somebody did, that his father did almost 40 years earlier. And that act of tzedakah had a, a, a lasting impact. So these are just like modern-day examples of what we're learning over here. Haman came to use money for a negative purpose. But the money that he sought to hurt the Jewish people with ends, ends up being deflected by the money that tzedakah that was given by ancestors. The ancestors of these people, many, many, many centuries before, makes a difference and protects us at this time, this critical time of our need, when Haman is planning, the final solution. So, so this is um, this helps us understand a little bit of, of, of the background, and and here's here's some interesting uh, points to make. Before we go back to, to the technicalities of the shkalim, so point number one, just again like certain points of interest. The uh, Vilna Gaon says, "Imala Melach says the Vilna Gaon says he says, "I don't necessarily want this." I don't want to kill anybody. I'm just a nice guy. He said, but if the king wants, I'm just giving advice. It would probably be a good idea to get rid of these people. They're really troublemakers. Like, whatever you, whatever you say. And that's why he emphasizes, you know, Eichmann, um, one of his arguments were, I was just a functionary. I just, I just followed orders. He was, he was the architect of the final solution. He, he, he arranged the murder of millions and millions of Jews. He said, I was just, I was just working. It's just, so Haman could come along and say, I'm just following orders. The king, the king was the one who said to do it. I just said, you know, if you think this is a good idea, I, I, I can follow orders, I can do what you want. And this is so devious, where well, Haman comes along, but he wants to have his hands clean. I didn't do anything. All I did is, all I did is what I was told. Now, why would he offer money here? It's very strange. Whoever heard of such a thing, a buy-off citizens? So Haman said, look, what, what, what would the only concern would be? I mean, these are horrible people, the Jews. They're just all trouble. But, but they pay taxes. She said, ah, taxes. We can make up the taxes. That's not, that's not a reason. That shouldn't hold you back, he said. There'll be plenty of money. The, 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 it's, it's, the, we'll, we'll be able to find a way to compensate for this. And, and how will this happen? So he says, 
will we'll be collecting these talents, these enormous amounts of silver. And he says, Oysin Malacha, the Vilna Gaon says, is people who are actually involved in minting. So we'll use these coins. And these coins will be used by the minters. They'll, they'll turn these coins in. The Ma'amaloa says something interesting. He says, one of the things he said about the Jewish people, he says, you know, they don't really respect you. They look down at you. Um, and, and, he, and, and he said, we'll use silver, he said to himself, because silver is more like the moon. The moon is silver. The sun is gold, right? The Jewish people are also likened to the moon. So this was the way, this is like the Jewish thing. It's silver. And he said, the Jews, some of the Jews say, of, yeah, we're supposed to listen to the rules of the nation, but you're not really a king because at that point, Ahasuerus had not yet minted his own currency. So Haman says, and just to make this perfect, why don't we mint your own currency? Why, why don't we mint your own dollars, pesos, whatever it is, like uh, the currency, which was made of silver, silver currency. And as far as getting the, the currency done, bringing it to the treasury, he says, I will collect the bullion. And the Isa Malacha, the people who are going to mint the coins, they'll take care of things for you. And it won't be an issue. So this is, this is how, how, how Haman tries to set in motion what, what he wants to do. By the way, the words Ginze HaMelech, could also be anybody who works for the king, is in the service of the king, is called workers. Because it sounds funny, he says, workers? Who, who are these workers that the king is going to be involved with? Well, people in the king's service. The king has many, many people who are ready, standing by, to be useful, as they say. Now, ginze is an unusual word. Ginze, which we're translating as, as treasury. Um, some maintain that it's actually not a Hebrew word. It comes from the Hebrew word lignos, to hide, to hide away, but it's not, it's not used in the term treasury. Many maintain that it's actually a Persian word. It's only found in the book of Esther and the book of Yechezkel. It's not found elsewhere. So it may in fact be a Persian word. And it, I mean, the, the, the Megillah is not necessarily written in pure Hebrew. There may be other terms, other phrases, or, which were borrowed, borrowed terms, which are sim- other Semitic, similar languages at the time. The Malbim says, he says, what's going on over here? He says, whoever heard, whoever heard of a, a king who sells like the people? In history, is no such thing. Nobody really sells their citizens. Why, why, why would he even think of saying um, selling the citizens? Even he says in the old days where, where kings were, were violent people who abused the rights of others. And, and he says, if they're supposed to be killed, if, they're, if they deserve murder, they're to be killed, why, why would you like, why is there an issue of, of paying? In other words, it's like, one or the other, what's going on over here? If you have to pay, Something doesn't add up. If they're supposed to be killed, they're supposed to be killed. So the Malbim suggests something incredible. He says that Haman never uses the word death here. He uses oblique language. He says, Im la'abdam. What does la'abdam mean? Get rid of them. Get, get, get lost. Let's get, let's get, the Jews could be lost. So what does it mean to get the Jews lost? There's two ways we could be lost. One way to be lost is if physically we're annihilated. Another way is if we don't have a Jewish identity anymore. So if, we, if the Jewish religion is stamped out and Jewish culture is, evaporates, what makes Jewish people Jews? The answer is nothing. Where are the Phoenicians today? Nobody annihilated them. Nobody annihilated the Romans, but there are no Romans today. Maybe people live in Rome, call themselves Romans, but it's not the... It's, 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 these are ancient people. He says, we, he, Haman never openly says, let's get rid of the Jewish people, as in kill them. Haman says, let's simply get rid of the Jewish problem. 
We get rid of the Jewish problem with mass assimilation. We get rid of the Jews. And if you do all kinds of things to make them Persian, to bring them, make them, bring them into the melting pot, so then you won't have a Jewish problem anymore. And, and Ahasuerus is very happy with this. Ahasuerus never intends actually to kill anybody. It says uh, Ahasuerus wasn't thinking about mass murder. He was thinking about getting rid of the Jewish problem. So then, in that case, what's the business with the money? So, Haman says, you know, the Jewish people, they function well as a nation. And, and because of that, there's going to be some kind of loss to the treasury. I don't want, you don't want to lose this industrious, hard-working group of people. So that's what Haman says. Don't worry about it. The money will figure out. The, the, the money will, will come. And he says, trust me, the people who will help get rid of the Jews, they'll be so happy to do it. They'll pay for the honor. They'll pay, they'll, they'll pay to be able to do this. So that gives us a little bit of a different, a different uh, t- twist on things. And it's, it's telling and compelling and chilling that in the Nazis' plans, they very rarely used overt words. They used words like final solution. And first it was the Madagascar plan. They were planning to relocate all the Jews. That was also called final solution. With a number of versions of their final solution. And they were very careful, actually, if you go through documents, they were very careful about language. They didn't want to say explicitly kill, murder. They said liquidate, remove. They used all kinds of oblique language so wouldn't, you couldn't trace it exactly how the orders came, exactly how things should be done. And, and they, were, they were very careful that it shouldn't get out to the world. As far as the world was concerned, they were dealing with a Jewish problem. And they were dealing with an issue. And they were, they were, they were finessing things, working things out. So everybody knows there was a concentration camp called Theresienstadt, which was visited by the Red Cross. And, and they presented things as if it was a normal life. They even had a Jewish filmmaker do a documentary, and then they killed him. But, but, but to make it look as if the Jews are having their own nice society because they're so, they're so problematic, because they're, they're, they become entangled, and they get in everybody's way. So if you can self-contain them, they can live. Everybody lives in peace. The Jews will live in peace, and life will be fine. This is not an old, uh, an, uh, an old new idea. It's a very old idea. And by the way, when uh, the, the, the Iranian regime, which is probably the world's greatest, most anti-Semitic regi- regime in the world today, although the Sunni Arabs aren't doing much better, ISIS, I'm not sure they love us anymore, or... But they, what did they, they never they never say openly anti-Semitism. They never say they want to kill Jews. What do they talk about? They talk about getting rid of the Zionist regime, removing the Zionist regime. They always use these general words. We have to. We have a problem. We have this. They use all kinds of horrible words about Zionism and Zionists. It's always code name, and they don't talk about actually wiping Zionism off the map. Unfortunately, we know exactly what they mean. And, and their, their predecessors, the antecedents of these people, the Hummans of the past, also used that same kind of language, which was not exactly clear. And nonetheless, they were sending a message of exactly what they wanted to do. So it's like a little chilling when you read the Megillah and you hear the kind of details that are going on and you say like, uh-oh, <laughs> this is exactly how people are speaking. Unfortunately, our enemies still speak this way today. The Rebbe, the Rebbe says that there is an incredible lesson that's actually encoded into the story of the shekels. Because it's true that, you know, tzedakah is a very powerful mitzvah, and tzedakah that's done is, is something which is eternal, and it doesn't only benefit the one who gives the tzedakah, it benefits future generations, all true. He says, but the interesting thing, that in the Gemara and in the Targum Sheni, we go back to the Jewish people going out of Mitzrayim. We don't just talk about the mitzvah of half shekel, which always took place in the month of Adar. We talk specifically about the Jewish people who left Mitzrayim, who gave a half shekel. 
So what was the what was that half shekel used for? The first half shekels ever collected. This, the second collection of half shekel, even in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, was for the offerings. But the first half shekel ever given, which emphasized the idea of half. And we read this, we have a special reading before Purim, Parsha Shkalim. We read, The wealthy shouldn't give more, the poor shouldn't give less. Very exact. So this half shekel was used to create the Adanim, the silver sockets, which formed the basis, the foundation of the Mishkan structure. The Mishkan structure was of boards. Boards were put together. And these boards were placed in sockets. That was where they resided, on the sand. And then there was various rods that held them together. And then there were rings on top. So various ways that the walls of the Mishkan stood. But the foundation was made of pure silver. And that was the silver, the half shekels, given by the Jewish people at the time, that were melted down and formed as these, as these adunim, as these sockets. So the first time that this was done, where everybody gave it equally, what happened is, what happened is, this became the foundation for the Jewish people. The foundation for the Mishkan, nobody has a more of a, a portion or less of a portion. Later on, the 15 different precious materials, some gave more gold, some gave less gold, some gave more copper, some gave less, and of all the different kinds, people gave what they had. The one who had wool gave wool, the one who had linen gave linen. Everybody gave in accordance with nidvas libay, as the heart would impel them or push them to be able to participate. However, the half shekels on the bottom, the, 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 the foundation, in this area, we did not look for generosity. In fact, generosity was discouraged. You could not give more. And you couldn't say, well, this is all I can afford. No, everybody had to give the half shekel. So the Rebbe said like this. The Megillah is not just a story of what happened once upon a time. The Megillah is a story, unfortunately, it's a story of our people. The story of the Hamans and Nachashverishes, of the enemies of Jewish people who seek to destroy us. So when you have a Haman that comes, Lahashmid, Lahareg, Lahabid, to destroy. Because Haman uses language very, very clear later. Tachashveri, she doesn't use clear language. But later on, he has very clear, very explicit instructions, which we'll talk about in the forward classes, how Haman changes his, his tone and changes his words. Depends who he was speaking to. But when Haman comes, we know what his nefarious intentions are. Lahashmed, laharegel, abiz, kalayudim. So what's the Eitzah? What's our response? What does Mordechai do? He's, he says, Esther tells him, Lech knois is kalayudim. Go gather all the Jewish people together. And, and Mordechai did as Esther requested. And he gathered all the Jewish people together, especially the children, and they daven, and they prayed, and that's when things began to change. So what, what, what does that mean to gather all the Jewish people together? The Rebbe suggests that the, the foundation of the solution is to be found right here in this Gemara, right here in this Medrash, that says that when Haman began, how did he put his plan into, into action? First thing he did was he gave his reasons, he, his justifications. Immediately after the justification, he paid up. He was ready to give all the shekels. And right away, the Gemara tells us, our shekels were the counterweight. So the answer of gathering all the Jewish people together is that when we come together with a sense of tshuva, we come together with a sense of remorse, but we come together with a sense of yearning. We want to be closer to Hashem. Now, when you talk about the, in Yiddish they call it the Yiddish hearts, the Jewish heart awakening, where a person suddenly feels a yearning, 
it kindles, like a, the Yiddishkeit, the, the, what we call the Pintel Yid, gets rekindled. That little dot of Jewishness, that core nuclear essence, all of a sudden gets rekindled and people get inspired. So the truth is that there really isn't a difference between the learned or the ignorant Jew, the involved Jew, or the disaffected Jew. When Jewish people get inspired, when we get inspired, we get inspired together. And, and the truth is that you can't be more Jewish or less Jewish. If we're members of Am Yisrael, when we get inspired, so the Pintle Yid wakes up, and everybody's the same. Some people remember in 1967 that there was a, this mass euphoria that swept across the Jewish people. There was an awakening. There was a Jewish pride. Everybody was excited. It touched everybody. And, and this is reminiscent of the shekels. Because the shekels, the half shekels, first of all, they're half. Nobody give a whole shekel even. All have to, but joining together. But the half shekels is ha'osher le'yarba v'hadal yamet. You couldn't give more and you couldn't give less. Everybody had to give equally. And this idea of giving equally says that when, when, when a Haman rises, Haman hates all the Jewish people equally. Hitler hated all the Jews equally. The Iranians or the ISIS, they hate us all the same way. They don't care at the end of the day, they don't care if a Jew is religious or not religious, affiliated or unaffiliated, educated or uneducated, observant or non-observant. They couldn't care less. The anti-Semitism, when they hate the Jews, they hate the Jews. Yes, it's true. They'll, they'll find the Jew who's more easily visible and go after him. But they don't really hate the Jew who's visible any more than they hate the Jew who's invisible. In fact, sometimes they hate the Jew who's invisible even more because they feel that their ranks are being penetrated. So at least this Jew, we know who he is. You know where to find him. So when, they, when there's a hatred against us, the hatred does not see any difference. They don't have labels of who they hate more or less. So what's our response? Our response has to be, and we have to gather together in a way also that transcends our differences, that doesn't focus on labels, that doesn't focus on affiliations or involvement or education or, 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 or inspiration, but rather focuses, it gets down to the core essence. And that's how we build our Beis HaMikdash. That's how we build our, our vehicle, our convention, our envelope for Hashem's blessing. That's how we're able to create the opportunity that Hashem should dwell, dwell amongst us. That's the foundation. Of course, you have to have a building on a foundation. You can't just stay with a foundation. Foundations are not very pretty. But you have a foundation in place, everything else can be built. And the foundation is to be able to come together with this kind of Avas Yisrael. As, um, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain brilliantly uh, coined the phrase, Hitler hunted down every Jew in hate. And the Rebbe decided to hunt down every Jew in love. From, from the Rebbe's perspective, it didn't make a difference. But the Rebbe, the Rebbe taught us to love every single Jew equally. It doesn't make a difference whether somebody is or isn't observant or involved or uninvolved. It doesn't matter what creed, it doesn't matter what color, it doesn't matter what background. It's irrelevant. A Yid is a Yid. And every Yid is to be treated equally. That's, that's the answer. When things, when things get down to that, to that level, when it's lahashma, 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 what is our response? Our response is to create that kind of equality, that kind of oneness. And perhaps this even dovetails, I'm just adding this, into the idea that the Beis Hamikdash, or the second Beis Hamikdash at least, was destroyed because of sinas chinam, because of unnecessary hatred amongst each other. We, we hate each other with no reason, like just, I just can't stand them. Why can't you stand them? What do you do to you? I don't know, I can't stand them. People get like that sometimes. And what's our response? Our response has to be avas chinam, to love them for free. Not because they did something for me, not because they complement my idea or ideology or world outlook. N no, for no other reason than because that's my family, that's my brother and sister, that we're in this together. So this gives kind of a, a completion of the picture of the, of the, of the shekels. It's, yes, it's the schus of tzedakah, but it's much more than the schus of tzedakah.
because it's not just any tzedakah. It was the idea of half a shekel. It was the idea of equal participation. It was the idea of nobody giving more and nobody giving less. It was what he found from the Gemara and the Medrash to talk about whether the first shekels, which were the foundation, that was the whole Mishkan was built upon that. And later on, the offerings, which are a replication of that original idea, the foundational services in the base of Migdash, that that has everybody's participation. That's the meaning of he gave shekels, we gave shekels. He hated us, equal opportunity hatred, hated every Jew equally. Our response was, we came together equally. And when we come together equally, this enables us to overcome the Hamans of those days and the Hamans of today as well. And this uh, gives us an understanding and appreciation not only of what happened in yesteryear, but what's relevant and meaningful for us today. It's the famous teaching of the Baal Shem Tev, which I mentioned many times, but uh, in moments like this, it's, it's worthy to repeat that the Mishnah says, If you read the Megillah backwards, you don't fulfill the mitzvah. What does it mean backwards? What do it mean? You read chapter 4, then you read chapter 1, then you read chapter four, 3, then you go to chapter, chapter 8. How could you fulfill the mitzvah? The mitzvah, you have to read it in order. Only when you read it in order can you see the hand of Hashem. Because the Megillah, of course, is the only book that doesn't have Hashem's name. And because it doesn't have Hashem's name, somebody thinks the presence of Hashem is not there. But when you read the Megillah from beginning to end, and you see how everything just happens to line up, and everything just happens to be in the right time, in the right place, then all of a sudden you reveal the incredible Hashgacha Pratis, the fingerprints of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that are all over. So you have to read it in order. And that is, that's the literal meaning of the Mishnah. But the Baal Shem Tev taught us a deeper meaning. He said, A person who reads the Megillah, as something ancient, something old, he doesn't fulfill the mitzvah. Because if you don't understand that the Megillah is speaking to us in our time, in our age, if you, if you fail to realize that the Megillah is addressing a, a, a modern reality, a dynamic reality, a current reality, and is giving us the solutions to the problems we face today, you didn't fulfill the whole mitzvah of Purim. That's not why the sages instituted Purim, just to commemorate. We don't have commemorations of Judaism. We, we have actualizations. When we, when we, when we have a, a festival, when we celebrate the miracle of Hashem's deliverance, we're actualizing that energy. And, and we're being mamshich, we're drawing forth in a concrete way these brachas. And I would, I'll, I'll add and conclude with this, that there's a, a very interesting Gemara that speaks about the beginning of the Megillah. The, the beginning of the Megillah begins with the words Vayihi. Vayihi, the Gemara says, is Lashon Tsar. It's, it's, like a, it's a squeezed or a painful kind of language. It's a, it's a, squeeze, it's a syntax that's not comfortable, uncomfortable, uncomfortable phraseology. And the Gemara says, but there are, the Gemara brings a number of examples of Vayihis that are uncomfortable, that we feel squeezed or uncomfortable, or some pain with, associated with it. But then the Gemara comes along and says, but there are nice Vayihis. Hashem's presence came to the Mishkan. And then that goes back to the beginning of creation. Hashem created, it's evening, it was day. So how could you say Vayihi is Lashon Sar? So the, the Gemara says, okay, the teaching is not that Vayihi is Lashon Sar, when it says Vayihi Bimei. Vayihi Bimei was in the days. But some of the Mufarshim say is a double, it's like a double, it's like a redundancy, it's double, Vayihi Bimei. If it said Vayihi, why do you say Bimei? It was in the days. If it was, it was in those days, obviously. So Vayihi Bimei, that's when you have Lashon Sar. That's when you have, that's when you have, you have this idea that's, that's, that's squeezed. One of the Altarebbe's Chavedim, his name was Chaim Chaikel of Amdor, so he said like this. He said, when you come to a to Torah and you read it as Vayihi Bimei, 
something that was, that's Lashon Sar. That's, that's pain. But if he says, Vahaya, Vahaya means it will be. Vahaya means it's dynamic. Ah, Vahaya, that's Lashon Simcha. And in the Torah, we have Vahaya, we're introducing a concept of joy, a concept of Simcha. So, so when we are reading the Megillah, if we just read it, like, historically, Vayihi, it was once upon a time, we missed the whole point. Instead, we have to read the Megillah as Vahaya. This is dynamic. This is real. This is eternal. This is Hashem's prophecy. This is speaking to us today. And if we learn and read the Megillah like that, we have the problems. Nobody hinges any imagination. You don't have to study about that. That's out there in the street. But we study the Megillah. We have our answers given to us. Hashem should help us that we should have the courage and the wherewithal and the intuition to come together and to be united. And as such, to be zeicha, to merit Hashem's blessings, geul of Yeshua and deliverance and redemption just as it was in those days, it should be in our days, hopefully culminating with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, Ubi Amenu, Amen.